what's interesting is the decision to start a company to maybe make a film that's outside the box, to change my approach to the mountains, to start Protect Our Winners, these kind of societal risk-taking is every bit, if not more, terrifying than going up into these dangerous mountains and, and you know, where a wrong call could be your last call. Um, and I find it interesting just how much the shackles of, like, society and what if I fail and stuff like that, and it's taken... Um, it takes that same kind of guts to, to step out there. Welcome to The Common Threads. During each episode, we'll travel through time to explore the childhoods, influences, and habits of some of the world's leading athletes, industry experts, and entrepreneurs. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening app, and visit ProKit, where we bring together the best interviews, podcasts, and articles in a new platform for athletes. I'm your host, David Swain. It is just about 8 a.m., bright and early, still got our coffee moving, um, and here with Jeremy Jones, um, who is uh, really an icon in the snowboarding world, um, and over the last few decades has become much more than that, um, founder of Protect Our Winners, uh, which has really mobilized an entire community and part of the the country around fighting climate change, entrepreneur, founder of Jones Snowboards. Um, I don't like the accolades because people are much more than them, but just to put it in context, if you aren't um, familiar with Jeremy, so Obama's champion of change um, for his work on climate, 10 times, 10 time big mountain rider of the year, Nat Geo adventure of the year nominee, filmmaker 50 plus movies so you're pretty busy <laughs> dad <laughs> you've got a lot going on um but i always start with the hardest question of the day so um okay. what did you have for breakfast <laughs> i have uh, just asked you very um, good i had a house early this morning uh, so yeah early interview and there we go we'll see how <laughs> all right um so so welcome and uh so we've known each other for a few decades so um so just for context my wife and jeremy went to high school together although you were a few years older at carabasset valley academy in maine um so talk about your journey from uh you know growing up so from from cape cod to the big mountains like how does that how does that journey progress? <laughs> well, you know, I grew up at the highest point of Cape Cod, so naturally we were mountain folk two hundred feet. But basically, my grandfather uh, he fell in love with Vermont later in life. Um, my parents then went and followed him. Also later in life as kind of young parents and they just were all in on going to Stokemont every weekend. Just a five hour drive and um, they'd bring we'd go up to the mountain and 
really quickly. It was about like, all right, kids, um, we'll see you at lunch. Get out of here. We're going to the And my brothers and I, just at, at that time, growing up on Cape Cod, hockey was a very, um, that's kind of like the sport there. And so we were all serious hockey players. We, our basement was, um, we had like a hockey rink down there with nets, and uh, we were just hockey, hockey, hockey. But, um, Pretty quickly, my brothers and I just felt the pull of, of snow, and it's one that you don't even really realize it's happening. And as I got more serious in hockey, uh, my parents, being I was the youngest of three, and they're like, and they go to the coach and go, hey, he'll play on that travel team, but you're taking them. He goes skiing every weekend, vacation to the mountains. And by... Well, I was like, I not hockey went away really fast. Yeah, um, and what about your, you know, snowboarding? Like, what talk about that? I mean, what year was it? What was the state of snowboarding in Stowe, Vermont, in those days? Yeah, so I feel super fortunate to. Uh, in the sport when I did, which was nine years old. Um, I was really into skateboarding, uh, something about just the action sports lifestyle. Like, we considered our, ourselves, uh, my cousin and I, I'm monster, we were like, we're surfers, we're skateboarders. Started seeing snowboarding in the uh, magazines, in skateboard magazines, Thrasher magazine. And I saw the first Burton Backhill uh, in the basement of Shaw's General Store in Vermont. And I'm like, that's what I want for Christmas. Uh, Santa blessed us with um, my brothers and I with Burton Backhills. And went out instantly and were able to make turns in power. And there's this little rave of this tennis court. Um, in Vermont, there was this like hundred foot pitch, and we just laughed at. Uh, but hard pack was basically impossible. And then they had a deal where you could trade in each year's board, and you get credit for the next one. So I kept doing trade them in, trade them in, and then I back up to this Burton Cruiser, which was boards with edges and high backs, and uh, still really struggled with. Hard snow, um, and then one night, um, as sun was setting, it was it like peak frustration. Because when I got this board with high backs, with edges, I'm like, this is now I'm gonna be able to ride on hard snow. Couldn't do it, um, and was like, do I take this back? And that board I had to trade in all my brother's boards. Uh, so our three boards to get this one board plus some extra money, and uh, go to the top of the hill, and get up to speed, and I swear it was like a, um, like something just hit me, and I remember exactly where it was on the mountain, and I just tipped it over on edge, and made a toe turn, tipped it over, made a heel turn, did that to the bottom of the mountain, under the twilight, I was so excited to get back up there, I like broke a buckle on binding, and then, um, that point on, it was like my days on. It, I used to ski all day and then go snowboard down the house. And then I started going home earlier and earlier to go snowboard. <laughs> and what about your brothers? 
Same. So when my brothers were kind of like not nearly as impassioned on it, they weren't in that like state as much into the sideways sport, but they they enjoyed it. Uh, but I remember, so it, it was allowed on the mountain um, at 12. And I basically, um, I was the first person to be certified. You just have to get checked out to be able to snowboard on the mountain. A big deal. I remember when uh, seeing in the Burton catalog when snowboarding, they had a list of mountains that was allowed in, and I saw snow. It was like life changing, literally. And, uh, and thanks to, you know, I know Jake Burton had a lot to do with um, getting these things open. So big thanks to Jake, who we're going to celebrate tomorrow. Uh, but I. My brothers and I go up on like the first day, and they got yelled at by skiers. They took one run, they slammed a bunch, and we're back on their skis. Um, and they still they snowboard and ski, but not you know I went you know, 100% snowboard, never touched my skis uh, after that. Talk about the uh, you know so from there to uh, an academy for this like the. What were your aspirations at that point as a kid, um, and what level of support, or you know, where where were your parents in the equation on all of that? Were you driving them, or were they? <laughs> My parents were very. Um, I don't, you know, they were not helicopter parents. Let's put it that way. Uh, and so quickly, once it was allowed at the mountain. Um, it, that's when hockey officially just stopped. Yeah, and I remember, um, you know, just going, you know, like, I'm done with hockey. And the coach is calling my parents and being like, What do you mean he's done? That's ridiculous. And no family meeting, no nothing, no zero discussion with my parents. And so that was kind of my parents were like, Oh, yeah, whatever you want. Um, and then at that time, there was really uh, no such thing as. As being a pro snowboarder, I mean, there were guys like Terry Kidwell and um, and kind of some early day Tim Zellers, and there were people that were getting free boards and maybe getting some trips paid for. But um, my brothers and I, when we were in Vermont, I mean, we just got so into it. It was every day, um, first lift to last lift, no matter what the conditions. And my dad worked really hard so we could. Up there on the weekends, and some weekends he'd have to, wouldn't be able to go for work. And we started connecting with um, and admiring like the best. We figured out who like the best skiers on the mountain were, and then we'd get close to them. We'd kind of like, How often are you guys out here? They're like, Every day. And we're like, Well, what do you do for work? And they're like, Well, we bartend at night and we paint houses in the summer. And we're like, <laughs> That's what we're doing. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, guess what? You can do this every day. <laughs> a parent's dream. Yeah, a parent's yeah. dream. And then, sure enough, we started painting houses and, uh, you know, working in the restaurant industry. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, okay, so from from that moment to... It wasn't that much. I mean, what what year was that? Like then, you know, yeah, so you're, we're seeing you in videos in Alaska, like not <laughs> not that. And, yeah, the sport was on. Yeah, like rocket ship. And if you just if you looked at 
the product between 1987 and 1991 in snowboarding. I mean, it is like 50 years of evolution. I mean, it is crazy how fast that went. So, I went to my first um, contest was a half hour away, and I went to this contest when I was 14. Had no idea what type of right. I was, and um, went and I won this race, and I was like, "Wow!" And then did another one, won that one, did another one, won that one, and um, and at that time, I was also like struggling in school. Um, my I had this like passion that I'd never had before. The sport was growing. And my dad's, um, one of his closest friends, Warren Cook, was um, running Sugarloaf. They had this small academy, Carabasa Valley Academy. Uh, he's like, we're trying to grow the snowboard program. And I went there for winter semester. Um, and that's where I met Mark Fawcett. Um, and then started, we got to snowboard every day. And we got to uh, compete every weekend and did really well at the gym. I mean, just kind of winning, 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 winning. And then at 16, I'm like, like we, at that time, we'd be amateurs and regional pros competing. And I'm like, I realized that I was starting to um, be in there with the pros. And then at 16, I went and did my first pro contest, got third place. And, um, was able to take that money and go to the next pro comp and kept doing that. And then by 18, I was in the last of my brothers. That's insane. And you were racing, so that, right? You weren't, because there was the half pipe competitions back then. And, yeah, and, so it was um, back then, it was all about like overall world champion, which was racing and half pipe. Oh, it was, but, yeah. Snowboard. Uh, mm. Yeah. And so everyone did everything, and it was all about the overall. And I won the, you know, the junior regional overall title. So I could, I was decent in half pipe on a good day. I could get third place. Right. Um, but when it came to racing, I was, I mean, I think I won like 35 races in a row. Or yeah. Like it just really clicked. Um, and when I turned pro, I did a race, and I got third, and I did a half pipe, and I got 40th. A funny throwback to half pipes. I was a skier and I was not allowed in the half pipe. So it was the reverse. So all of my friends were snowboarders and I would go under the tape to go in the half pipe on my skis. That was like a big deal. <laughs> Things have changed. It's so funny too, because I mean, ski technology borrowed from snowboard right like it was yeah. things it's really interesting how snowboarding is the one that actually pushed the ski industry um well, <laughs> yeah there's both going on now things really took off with snowboarding when we built them like a ski yeah yeah so talk about that for you you know clearly like i mean even just hearing the vivid detail that you can recall those snowboards and which ones worked and like the feeling under your foot the first time that things dialed in um like how you what does that say about how you how you learn um 
and like why were you good at racing and so quickly like what what was it about you or your approach it's you know now having kids and watching yeah. kids come up with it um, at the first and foremost it's like repetition so we my brother and I just had this deep love for it and um, and I remember uh, you know, it's like yeah we all love the free powder day so we early on coined the phrase love of sport day and um, when nobody's there it's raining it's icy there's frostbite stuff I mean I remember um, the lifties being like you can't get on the lift you have to have frostbite and then we found this cream that we could put on our face to not get frostbite and um, so it's if you think about it um, I have when it comes to and this is I could say this 20 years ago, um, when I was really, at that point, I was, my big mountain riding was taking off, and I was doing it more than anyone in the world, and if you do it more than anyone in the world, you're going to get to the upper 93% without that, right? Yeah. I mean, you're a decent athlete, do it more than anyone in the world, that puts you in that 93% zone, and then... That extra, uh, I mean, we're all fighting for the extra 2%, right. 1%, maybe it's half a percent. That extra half percent takes like 80% more work. Um, and so I think having something that I loved so much that had me just working, not even realizing I was working, but just the reps and the and riding every type of conditions, chasing my brothers down the mountain, just trying to keep up, they're on skis, I'm on snowboard. That's where it um, works, and I see it now with my kids, because we go out and ride the mountain, and they beat the crap out of me. I just spent a week with them riding bumpy hardback, bell to bell, and they're riding good. Um, and they're, you know, I you bring them in the real Chamonix, you name it, we're in Canada, and these tricky lines, entries, they didn't even think twice about it because we have so much, so much repetition in bumpy hearts now. And you've never, that like learning mindset, I mean, you could, it's interesting, like a lot of people, pro athletes in any sport, not, you know, not just snow sports, but you look at, they kind of reach the pinnacle and whether by their choice or not, at some point they kind of just hang it up. Um, but you're still pushing, you're not only, you're still pushing um, and you're evolving the sport. And I think that that part for me is really interesting. And um, I'm going to talk about kind of your life as an athlete and then entrepreneur and the activist side. But as an, as an athlete, the progressions you've pushed yourself and the sport through um, from like the embodiment of big mountain i mean talk about like uh you know when you see people talk about like big wave surfing who haven't seen it and they describe the feeling of paddling in or getting towed in and the crap like the talk about you know you get you show up in alaska from stowe vermont i mean those are you know that's not the same and you're dropping in on a spine that's to however many vertical feet describe that (laughs) Yeah, I mean, uh, 
I mean, we talk about it um, more and more. I'm like, what we... In the Alaska stuff, I guess, first and foremost, I got to Alaska, and my brother's like, get in the helicopter, we're going up, you know, follow me. And I vividly remember, um, come my first run in Alaska, my brother goes first, he's like, right, he's right on my track, I drop in, it's totally blind, um, perfect powder, pink light, and come over this um, roll, my you know, throats in my stomach, and this 2,000 foot base, steeper than, you know, one of the steepest things I've ever ridden, unfolds in front of me, and I just, like, let go, and let my board take me down this mountain, and I'm going faster than I'd ever been, I'm making, I'm in total control my, you know, I'm like laying out these turns with like my head like two feet above the ground, and um, it was, yeah, that, I mean, if it wasn't, if the hook wasn't set before that, it was officially set at that moment. And talk about uh, the fear side. Like, that doesn't seem, it, it doesn't, when you came over that, that, that knoll and you've got a face that is like basically a vertical wall for a lot of people that's like the whole you know you yeah. that's like the pit in the stomach where you get nervous and you crash <laughs> right yeah. like, but that wasn't the case it doesn't sound like yeah i you know the fear stuff is it's a it's an interesting thing and i guess the you know to kind of jump to this like the stuff we're doing now, I'm camping in front of these lines and hiking up them and then snowboarding down them and we're leaving camp in the dark and mountains are making noises and stuff like that. And I guess I just skipped to that because now instead of being on a slope for like two minutes, you're on a slope for a couple hours. So you are looking, you know, you are like looking down the barrel of a shotgun stuff above you, if anything falls, nothing up the mountain, da, da, da. If there's a small avalanche, you're getting shots, you know, you're going to be at the bottom of that mountain really fast. Um, and so you have time to really sit with your fear, and with that stuff, it's, you know, there's a lot that goes into that, and I call it um, boogeyman fear or real fear and breaking these things down to, like, I never set out um, and be like, we're going to go climb this mountain. It's always, we, we think it's in play, we feel good about moving forward. If all goes well and we turn 20 no's into 20 answers, we'll have an opportunity to stand on top of this thing and snowboard back down. And has that, has that approach for you, I mean, you've always, it's funny that, you know, um, we went, you probably don't even remember, but 20 years ago we went and skied. It's like what munchkins behind Alpine. Um, and it was with Josh Pike when he still lived out here. Another CVA alum. And, uh, but even then, I think it was 2000 or 2001. Um, I forgot one of my, I didn't have probes or my trans, something I forgot. And you just stopped in your tracks then so this is 20 like 20 years ago 
you were already like, okay, we're not like you instantly were like, we're not doing that. We're going to go here. And what the hell <laughs> it was, but it was like good for, for me. I think people, especially, you know, you think about our kids growing up, they see this, you know, this stuff happening and, um, they think it's all just fun, but there's calculation and training and thought, even when you're still early in your career, um, on a, you know, something pretty tame compared to Alaska, you, you stopped me in my tracks. So, um, yeah, talk about your progression on the understanding the mountain and your appreciation for kind of the, you know, you seem pretty humble around your relationship with the mountain. Yeah, definitely. And it, you know, definitely learned a lot from my brothers. Um, my two older brothers learned a lot from, and I still like to go to that learning side of things. It's um, always learning, always uh, looking. I've always looked to people older than me to uh, how they doing it. Asking questions um, and really understanding also, like, all right, what's worst case scenario here? And it, it's funny with my brothers have this film company, Teton Gravity Research, and filming these high, you know, high octane, high risk um, action sports for 20 years now, and we could put a demo reel up of like harrowing crash after harrowing crash and be like, wow, how, how many people died with filming? And, um, and we have a good track record in getting our mountains or not to say, you know, it's, it's, we're riding a, it's a very edge type stuff, but we, we are constantly, every year we get together as a crew and, um, hone our skills, bring in someone like we think we can learn from, we go over our mistakes. Um, and But the big thing is, is like, what's worst case scenario here? And if it's, so you could, we could go out on a day that you won't be scared at all, or I was actually with my wife and she, um, in Chamonix and my kids, and we rode this seemingly melly, mellow Valley Blanche, and I'm with a buddy of mine, and She's just whistling Dixie, having the time of her life, and we get down and we're like, "All right, that you know, that's a very open glacier. It's all over the place, and there's all this hazards out of our control." But understanding where you can take you know take risks and have mistakes, and where you can, and so we could go out on a very what you would think is a mellow day, and I'd be like, "We're out of here," this, you know, because we're worried about. If something slides, it's going to be this massive avalanche. On the flip side, I'll get in and drop into lines and go, all right, if this thing slides, I'm going to get flushed off this um, mountain. It's not enough to bury me. It's going to be a bad fall. I could tweak myself, but I'm going to come out of this. And that's really what TGR is based there. Our whole deal is like high-end, um, high-action, kind of edge of the, you know, makeable and not makeable, but in places that you can uh, hmm. make mistakes. What about the progression from, so you're doing that kind of like Alaska helicopter, um, you know, biggest, you know, how many runs a day, right? You're filming, I'm sure, all day long to 
um, the progression over the last, you know, a, a decade or so where, um, you know, you're hiking these and you're hiking stuff that's never been done before. And, you know, you're, like you said, you're on the ground for weeks. Um, so what, you know, where did that come from that to push yourself and kind of the splitboard and for people who aren't familiar with splitboarding, what even just give us a step of like where that. So splitboarding is, um, basically it's a snowboard that has a, can, is cut in half and you put climbing skins on it and you, um, it's basically two skis. So we're able to tour up the mountain when we get to the top, we connect the board together. Um, so for me, I am always looking, um, I like pushing myself. I, I love being in places in life and in the mountains where I go. I could not have been here a day earlier uh, because I need all the knowledge I needed to get here. Um, my progression, I realize, I mean, the, the switching from helicopters to foot-powered snowboarding for multiple reasons, but um, I just, I've always, like, when you're young, you can kind of progress by hitting bigger cliffs, and um, and over time, that changes, and I realized that I had kind of taken it as close to the edge going downhill on a um, kind of this high-octane snowboarding. I realized that um, as someone, like, my favorite thing in the world is to walk into new mountains, find this beautiful dream line that in my greatest imagination could have never thought of a line that cool and figure out how to go and ride that. And with helicopters, you're really limited where you can take them. Um, I uh, became hyper aware of the impact um, of my snowboarding and life on the planet. Uh, So that didn't sit as well with me. And then at the end of the day, it's like, what is the goal of snowboarding and or all these activities? And, and I boil it down to, it's um, like, why am I still so hooked on it? Um, is, is it the, what is it? You know, how can that be? That I, I think I am snowboarding now more than I ever have. And I think it's this um, deep connection with nature uh, that walking into the mountains and walking up them is uh, this incredible deal. It forces you to be uh, present. It's this walking meditation. Um, It's creativity on how you're going up, how you're going down. And so now, for example, where I can keep progressing um, is now through a lot of time in the mountains, I've figured out how to be self-supported, and I've been doing these kind of point-to-point traverses up to 10 days long. And so what that's getting me into this these ranges, like the Sierra, uh, where we've got a ton of people going in the mountains, but I'm able to, by walking for days on end and camping, I can now get to this second, third, fourth layer that has seen very little, if any, um, 
snowboard tracks for sure. And I can go, you know what? I am still moving the ball forward in this random manner, still using all this skill. We're still refining our kits and tweaking it. And even yesterday we did this 10,000 foot day that's the biggest day I'd ever done. Um, and, you know, relied on nutrition and all these things. Um, and it's evolution. And it's not stagnation, and um, and that is important in life, and um, it's important with society too. That you know, people talk about that is like growth mindset versus you know having a fixed mindset where you think you know you kind of know what you know, and you're not going to get better. Like, uh, I mean, it seems like you've had that since you were a little kid playing hockey. Um, it's, it's yeah. So, and that's a good, like, how do you, cause there's, yeah, there's this interesting thing too. I mean, you, you took a passion at the time, you know, it's not like you were, it wasn't clearly about money. You were painting houses and chasing it as hard as you could. And, but taking the passion, continuing to learn, it's in, like how you've pushed yourself both as an athlete to continue to progress, but also as a, you know, you've also made some big bets starting a company, <laughs> like protect our winners. Like, um, I think it's really funny having been involved in the startup world. Um, everybody sees the company a few years later, but not the day it was started when it's like, you know, like, <laughs> like the, the decision to do both of those things, like, they're very similar, to be honest. And I think of like I get woken up in the middle of the night um, uh, at different times, um, and it's interesting. Like there's that um, woken up in the middle of the night before a trip or before a big day, and where I know like wrong call is fatal. And um, the what's interesting is the decision to start a company to maybe make a film that's outside the box, to change my approach to the mountains, to start Protect Our Winners, these kind of societal risk-taking is every bit, if not more, terrifying than going up into these dangerous mountains and, and you know, where a wrong call could be your last call. Um, and I find it interesting just how much the shackles of like society and what if I fail and stuff like that and it's taken um, it takes that same kind of guts to, to step out there and, and go in those directions it's as a parent too I think that um, it takes a lot of guts to let your let your kids make those choices that don't seem obviously they're not following a traditional path where there's a clear outcome, right? Like your parents will let you do that, right? Yeah, That's I, it. Yeah. As a parent, I, I like <laughs> thank my parents. I mean, for example, I'm in high school, I graduated high school, $10,000 in debt. Um, I didn't want to take the SATs. It was like 60 bucks. I'm like, why am I spending 60 bucks on the SATs? I know I'm not going to college. And my mother's just like, you're 16. You're just written that off. I'm like, it's not happening. 
Um, and so you think of, of yeah, like and now that I'm a parent and I, it's funny because it's like I get asked to speak at schools and stuff and I'm like, well, do you really want to know? Because <laughs> there's a point of like not having a, um, it's like live without a net, um, meaning when you are striving for something and there is no, um, there's no backup plan. It's not the smartest thing in the world, but it sure as hell gets you through hard times. And, and I've definitely slept at bus stations at a very young age and train stations and hitchhiked, um, got dropped off on the side of Highway 80 to hitchhike to Jackson Hole um, when I was 18. And, uh, and definitely, I mean, it was like I lived in a closet for a long time. And... Um, and it was interesting because coming from the East Coast was where I grew up was very it was all about going to a good college. Um, and so for my parents, for years it was like, oh, how's um, how are the boys doing? And it's like Jeremy just moved into a bigger closet. <laughs> Todd has moved from the floor to the couch. And uh, Steve just bought his first car, uh, so they're doing great. And it's, I, you know, and, but there was, my parents knew, um, they just, there was no talking us out of our, our path. I want to get more into the kind of the learning mindset piece and kind of what maybe other people can learn from you on that, but... Um, quickly before we transition out of the athlete side, like the second I hit 30, I was already worried about longevity, like my knees from skiing and my lower back, like, you know, it was, it was something that it was not like this middle age thing. I was, I felt like in my twenties, I was already worried. Um, you, you've been pushing your body hard, um, for a long time. How, you know, obviously you're insanely active every day, but on the learning side, have you have there been deliberate moves or shifts you've made in how you approach your body and nutrition over the years that have that have helped you stay at the front lines? Yeah, so I, I mean, I would by like twenty one or something like I had my back first one out by. 28, it was going on more. Um, by 30, I'm like, I don't know if I, if I went back to my journal, they're, they're deep and dark. Um, and I, yeah, I, so I dealt with um, major back injuries that I thought was going to end my snowboarding. Um, and, but I just, you know, dove into it and um, went and saw, you know, every expert I could, and then I learned how to kind of take care of it myself, um, and then, and which is why I say I'm snowboarding more now, because really this foot-powered snowboarding, it's like mm -hmm. I needed to take like 100,000 steps. To get your back loose? That, um, well, just to like realign my body. Yeah. Uh, and so... That coupled with 
again, always looking at people older than me, asking questions, um, really trying to fix my injuries. Uh, and and the cool thing is, is there was a point where I'm like, I don't think I can ride the resort anymore. Um, and so I went all foot power, back started feeling good. Now be, I can, now I'm riding a lot of hard pack again. Uh, I'm the resort with my kids and I just kind of balance it out. And, um, and I have a big thing is like, you mentally think of this deal where you're like, oh my, you know, it's all downhill from here in the bad way. And I, a couple of years ago, I'm like, the hell with that. And I dove even deeper into it. And by, I by no means am this like crazy health freak. Right. What have you. Um, if I went to a yoga class, I'd be like, oh my God, you are so screwed up. Um, I was never flexible and da 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 da. But I have developed this, um, I'd say the biggest change of late has been probably two or three years ago, I made this commitment to um, every morning, um, kind of just waking up my body, and it's as little as five minutes, and it's as long as 20 minutes, and um, that that consistency has really uh, helped and put me in a good place where, you know, I, I, did, I just had my biggest day in the mountains and felt great at the end. What's that morning routine look like? Morning routine is um, uh, electric foam roller yeah. um, on my back, legs, uh, super quick. Um, plank, uh, get juices flowing. And I've had, again, through all this time, like this certain, like I've had expert, um, I had a yoga guy, like really dive into like two poses to like spend you know, multiple hours on like making sure I'm doing it right. So he's um, like kind of lunge and then warrior one yeah. stuff. Um, this bridging deal to wake up my glutes mm. um, and an inversion table mm. to start um, my day. I have one of those as well. <laughs> and, then, um, and then I will release my psoas. Not every morning, but pretty regularly. What about nutrition? So nutrition, I um, definitely embraced, moved to a, a plant-based diet for environmental reasons, um, and kind of did it pretty naturally. Uh, where I, my wife called me up, she's like, "You realize you like are basically vegan now?" And I didn't realize it, but I, what I liked was. Um, and I'll say it started with, um, through Jim McConkey Foundation, they did this Meatless Mondays. I'm like, oh, I'll do that. And I remember going out to a restaurant, and I was, again, already on this vegetarian train, and uh, pretty heavily, but uh, and then I'm at a restaurant, and I'm like, oh, this is one way I would get, like, I don't know, some piece of fish, or maybe a piece of meat, or what have you, something I'm not eating at all. Had this really um, amazing veggie dish, and I went home, and I'm like, I went to the same restaurant I love to go, Moody's, and switched it up. And I'm, you know, instead of like being just like, oh, we're gonna eat, I'm gonna have a food coma, we're gonna go home, I'm gonna crash, and, and what have you. I had this 
feels like you started to realize, like, God is eating light, and that goes back to talking to these, um, this guy, Palmby, uh, who's 75, still climbing mountains, and uh, what is the trick? And, and, and I find the really old people, I ask them, and they always say the same thing. Keep moving, eat light. Um, so, I didn't think much about the, the vegan diet, um, that it was an athletic performance enhancement, but it, I did, like, naturally, my natural weight had dropped, like, three pounds, um, which is a good thing, especially if you have bad back, you know, that's the first thing you want to do is get rid of excess weight. Um, and then I saw that film, Game Changers, and the woman biker is like, my performance really increased. I'm like, oh, maybe that happened to me. I don't know. But hmm. um, definitely, yeah, so that and then recovery is a big part of it. Uh, when you're going big, you can kind of eat whatever you want because uh, your body needs to just eat, eat, eat. Um, but as soon as I get done, I'm like, we live just on eating pistachios and water and ideally a banana because I want to go out the next day and if you nail that first half hour and, the, and why I say that we don't end we end at trailheads in the middle of nowhere uh, so we don't have the ability to like blend up with me yeah what's in your backpack on a uh, you know like one of your one or two day big where you're pushing it so I will um, when I'm really worried about like if I got the fitness yeah for, to do what we're trying to do then that's when things get pretty damn simple I mean I'll have some kind of salty trail mix I'll have some um, kind of clip bar type sweeter stuff yeah and then, but really it's shop locks um, and shop locks and some electrolyte type water Just water, and, and so I just like eliminated everything, and it was, um, it was like six sleeves of shop blocks. Uh, just the ease of yeah. digesting. It's like the Iron Man diet. Really? Yeah, pretty similar. <laughs> so let's, I think it's a good transition point to protect our winners and, um, and what you've been at there. Um, I mean, that, like we talked about at the beginning, that's like landed you testifying in front of Congress. Um, you've built, you know, you can't go into a ski shop here in Tahoe without seeing a poster on the wall. You know, your your face was on the front of the Patagonia store for the last couple of years. So, I mean, from the start, from that's like, you know, that's today, like rewind to the beginning um, where this was starting and kind of what it's become. Um, so, Protect Our Winners, um, I started it in 2007, first uh, had the idea in 2003, I just, I didn't, um, you know, hearing about global warming and going, I don't like that. Um, by 2005, I was... Um, 
starting to see more of that. Uh, I had a moment in, um, I was in northern Canada, and there was a uh, closed ski area, and it was uh, February, it was all grass, and I got to be friends with locals, and we were waiting on some good weather, and so we went for a hike up the mountain, and they were talking about their, where these, they learned, they're showing the jumps, and like, oh, there's a snack shack that used to have that cookies in there, and da 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 why wasn't it, um, it was actually raining at the time in mid-Jab in Canada, and I'm um, like, so why isn't the mountain open anymore? And they're like, we just want to get snow down here. And I was like, well, these guys are young. lose their resort. And then I started thinking like 38 chunks. And, um, so I wanted to, um, at that point I had a bunch of promo products, and I'm like, I need to, I'm going to take a um, percentage of my royalties and towards um, climate change. And I looked around and there was just nothing uh, that stuck with me and I called a friend at the Surfrider Foundation and I like looked at it and they're like, your industry is doing nothing on this. Like, you guys gotta get your act together. You should start something. And I'm like, that is a lot. I'm a snowboarder. <laughs> I'm a snowboarder. <laughs> yeah. Barely graduated high school. Flying around in helicopters have an enormous carbon footprint, and but they were right. Um, and so I just started. Uh, I got over the deal, and I'm like, I I knew um, film companies, I knew the magazines, knew the writers, knew a bunch of the companies. I'm like, I can connect all these dots and get us off and running. And um, but it, it, I, you know, I remember like constantly going. Who am I to do this? And I was just like, this thing's only going to work if people like come to it right away. I learned to ask, um, you know, not be afraid to ask. And so basically we find the uh, best people on climate I could find, call them up, hey, you want to be part of this? They all said yes. And I think of it as this infant that I brought into the world and basically threw it into the world and it was either going to be raised by a bunch of people who are going to surround it and help it grow or it's going to die. And um, people surrounded it and uh, I'd say, it, you know, fast forward to today, I'm a big part of it, but I am just a piece of it, which is awesome. I knew it needed to take on a life of itself. Now we got... Um, you know, chapters all over the world, and it's just a ton of amazing people working on And what have you learned through this process and changing of presidents and and global views and science on what what's working? What's not? You've got the climate champions on one side. You've got the deniers on the other. There's the people in the middle who it seems like where you've had a lot of pro like progress trying to activate. Where are you optimistic and where are you freaking out? <laughs> well, first of all, I'm freaking out. Yeah. <laughs> to me every night right now. God, that's a big question, but I will, I would say quickly we realized to get, you know, the mass CO2 reduction, we're going to need, um, global leadership, we're going to need um, major policy change, we're going to 
need to stop subsidizing the fossil fuel industry seven hundred billion dollars a year. Um, it, you know, it's, I look back like the first thing we did was all about light bulbs and water bulbs, which is super important. Got my coffee cup, da da da. Um, but we're just not getting there without large scale policy change. Um, so that surprised, you know, that I never envisioned that when I started that we would be so active politically. The fact that it is a political issue, uh, especially in the U.S., is probably uh, or is the number one reason that we're not just all in on the solution. Um, so now we're in the wonderful um, world of politics and, and just the toxicity of that um, has been shocking. But I've really understood, uh, I understand why that is, what, why there is climate deniers, what's behind that. Um, that's been a little bit more helpful, so I don't uh, have as much anger towards climate deniers. Uh, they're a product of a you know, campaign to create climate deniers by the fossil fuel industry that date back to the early 80s. Naturally, the, you know, in Congress, when we talk our country uh, right now, our leaders are um, climate deniers, and every single one of those climate deniers in office takes um, donations from the fossil fuel industry, and that's uh, sadly what we're up against. Um, but we, you know, we need to um, rally. We, our hope is we don't spend time on uh, trying to change climate denier. We need the sideliners. We need the right, um, you know, we need to mobilize the, the right people in the right places and, and ideally get us uh, embracing um, you know, the clean energy future. And what can the I'm sure you get this question all the time, but I think it's everybody's kind of looking for what are the few most impactful things that the everyday person can do? Well, it, I mean, yes, personal, um, you know, living an exam life is important. You know, I don't want to just say, like, oh, what choices don't matter, because um, we need to kind of tackle it every from small things to big things. Uh, but we do, we know um, it's very, there's no debate in the, um, in, in the climate world, in the environmental world, that um, you know, the detriment of the current administration has reversed over 200 uh, laws that were tied to CO2 reduction. Uh, so the harsh reality is, is we need to rally which means that can be canvassing, that can be um, calling your parents in Florida, that can uh, be um, raising money to donate towards getting the right person in office. But if you're in the U.S. right now, this year, it's time to roll up the sleeves. It's time to, you know, we also, generally, everyone kind of has a voice now. And it's not, yeah, it's great when you have some big famous person talking, but we look at, um, you know, we really reach out to these people that maybe have 500 followers in their neighborhood, but if you were in their, 
Um, they're in key areas, and they talk about climate policy. They talk about, you know, if we want to go for clean water, clean air, and, you know, with cleaner energy and cleaner future and, and cleaner planet. Um, it's like we really need to, at every little level, just ideally get out the boat and get we were talking at the beginning a little bit about fear, like how much, you know, you, that's interesting. Like, you know, you, you're in a situation where you're, you know, snowboarding, even with all your skill, it's still, you're in high risk environments. You have to say goodbye to your kids and go away for, you know, multiple, multiple week trips. Right. And then, and then you've got climate on the other, <laughs> other side. Those are both, you know, they're in, like the, the, weight on your shoulders on climate like what's what's that feel like because protect our winners has become to me i think much more than about winners you see the yeah. right like it embodies anybody who who believes in environment so yeah i mean uh, i've had to really learn a lot over the last four years on uh, you know one like my disposition as a positive person always looks at the bright side Connection points with anyone. I'm not, I, my idea of good time is not getting on the rims. It's not um, going online and picking fights. Uh, so it's like really against my, my nature to um, kind of be in this world of politics, which is super toxic and you're going to get mud on your face. And um, so I've just had to. Um, Get over that, um, and and just dive into it. And I think about the kids, and I think about what um, you know. I want to be able to look at the kids in thirty years, hopefully, and, and say, you know what, you know, there was a problem. I did everything I could um, to, to get us on the right path, and, and I do equate it a lot to climbing a mountain, uh, an unknown mountain. Big mountain, uh, and think about um, it's one step at a time. We don't, you know, to put it in Everest terms, you know, it's kind of like 1950 where we don't know how to get past the Hillary step yet, but we know which way it is, and, and we need to just start. Um, and, and largely, I mean, the, the optimism of climate stuff is we largely have the solutions, um, and they create jobs. And so I guess that's where. Tonight I go, um, I'm going, snowboarding with a miner, or I leave tonight to go to Elko, um, which is dark red, um, and I'm going snowboarding with a miner, snowboarding to talk about climate change, and making a film called Purple Mountains, uh, that will take me through these key regions that we're focused on. You've talked about this, the, the like one step at a time thing, like in different components a few times, which I think is really interesting for anyone, athletes, parents, entrepreneurs. It's really easy to get caught up in the two-year vision, but the only way you get there is taking that first step and then the next step and the next step. Like, And you can read about that. You can hear about it. 
all these times you can agree with it, but doing it is hard. So what the mindset on that and like kind of what advice would you, I mean, even starting Jones snowboards, like maybe we can do a little bit on that. I don't know if that was a good example of the one step, but (laughs) yeah, I mean, it's just this deal where again, like I can't tell, you know, where I'll go, you know, just to, the mountains, for example, where I'll come in and we have this goal and you get there, you finally at the base and you look up and you just be terrified to leave camp. And we don't even talk about the summit. We don't even look at it. We're like, what's the, we're so hyper-focused. How are we going to get to, through this glacier? And it's, how are we going to get over the bird camp? How are we going to do that? And we protect our winners. Yeah, you're going to start a non-profit um, focused on climate change, and it's like, okay, that's just so out of my wheelhouse. So then it's like, I got to, what do we want to name it? We need a logo. What's the mission statement? So, you know, we need a website. I got a, the, the application to get a 5013C. deals 50 pages long. And so just bumping it forward. And with Jones, it was a... It's funny, the two things I never wanted to do was um, direct, make my own films, the Solomon's work it was, and I didn't want to show up, and start my own snowboard company. And in the um, course of like four months, I did both of those. Uh, and it was two years after starting Protect Our Runners. And I learned from Protect Our Runners. I'm like, just, you can do this just one step at a time. And, um, with the, but with the snowboards, I we took a couple steps pretty quick um, in the sense of like I I had that I was so fast on how quick I had the original line plan, um, the names, the, not that I've been thinking about, I mean, never even thought about it, and it was like I'm doing this, and I have so much kind of experience in that that I was able to get that going uh, pretty fast. But yes, definitely uh, knowing like this is what needs to be done and don't worry about what needs to be done after it. Let's just focus on what needs to be done now. Where is, where's Jones on the snowboard side now, like on a ride a couple of years ago, I remember you were talking, you made an interesting comment even just about spending time in Japan and like getting to know the local cultures and the industry there and the people and the customs like you've spent time now on the ground in so many places as a snowboarder but also you know you're an entrepreneur you're there I'm sure representing your brand um so yeah where where is that now and kind of a little bit on the culture side what have you taken through the like how do you how do what have you learned from all the places you've been that's a broad question but so the snowboards are, um, it's been really, like, there's no greater honor than going to a mountain and seeing someone on one of my And so I have really enjoyed the, the snowboard side of things and putting my head down and, like, figuring out snowboard designs. And there's, you know, there's a lot of great love the marketing of snowboards, all this stuff. I love um, 
you know, like I compare that to the climate work, and it's just a nice, fun break from that. Um, and then it's I really uh, we are part of one percent of the planet, which uh, means we take one percent off the sale of snowboard and put it towards environmental efforts and. We've had some great success, and we've had success um, around the world, which is, that is always blows me away when I go to some random off-the-map place, and there's three snowboarders there, and two of them are on the couch, and it's like, how did that even happen? Um, but to see, we've been able to, you know, we learn that um, any environmental organization or any NGO, you are uh, finding, you know, raising funds is the hardest thing to do. And uh, to have this consistent revenue stream for, that we use for both protect our winners and we have a rainforest and coastal reforesting has been this real drive for me. Because at the end of the day, I live a simple life. Uh, I value quality of life. Quality of life index, I like to say, is that's more important than the financial index. So I ask myself, why are we we continue to grow? We have product extensions, and a lot of that drive is that I see it as this source to raise money. How have you seen um, the industry change? Like, where where are snow sports? Like, outside of climate, like, what are you what are you seeing? What's exciting? What are you? What has you up at night? Well, we, we definitely we're seeing more people in the backcountry. Um, that side of things, I think people realize that the, the barrier to entry is not that hard. It's not that hard to walk up and down. Definitely that change in snowboarding. We've seen uh, a diversity of shapes, which has been great. Um, you know, different kind of all along the lines of surfing, where you know the perfect board can turn mundane conditions into really fun stuff. So I love that. Uh, there was a time in snowboarding where all the boards looked the same, all the riders looked the same, everyone talked the same. And I love to see the diversity in snowboarding right now, where there's a lot of, um, you don't need to just say, be in a park and in a trip or like that. There's a lot going on there for that. Um, so that, that side of things, and then the youth, and uh, we have a generation of snowboarders coming up right now. What's it been like is a progression where people recognize you? <laughs> you know, yeah, that is that. That is um, generally, you know, it happens in industry functions and stuff, but uh, it's not, you know, it's not that big of a deal. When I travel, it's a little bit more and, and what have you. I mean, it's cool to see people 
sight, um, it's a little weird, but it's not, you know, thankfully it's, it's the right amount of that. Right. You know, one thing I'll say on the industry side, um, we do every two trade shows a year, Europe and the other one is just North America and the U.S. And you really, I mean, it was like every single food had this, you know, we're in business with climate change and sustainability and all that, you know, which is great. It's like we'll see across all industry, um, there are so many from supply chain options to get clean from the materials and stuff. Um, and so that's becoming the primary message from everyone in that building. But the reality is, is we're not going to recycle our way out of this problem. Again, it's super important. It's going to be every year. We're pushing suppliers. We're you know, every aspect of that. And we will continue to improve. We're going to progression as it Every bit is as important as the best of the product. But when it comes time to say, hey, we need your help on climate policy, everything goes really silent. <laughs> and, um, and I'd say we protect our winners. That's been um, one of the, that is shocking more than anything since starting to protect our winners. I thought that the industry would way more rally around it. Which companies have come forward in a way that you think can be good role models for others? I mean, the obvious one is um, Patagonia. Um, you know, they, they built their brand off of that, so it's a little bit different. And not to say that it's just marketing scheme or what but it's like, they, this is who we are, and know what you're getting in Patagonia. So you take some others, a big company, been around for a long time, it's had nothing to do with the environment for them to shift and be like, we're all about uh, the environment and uh, you know, leveraging our power to get leaders in office. That's a, I, I understand the challenges of that. Uh, I think from a you know, big company that is named into it, I'll pop my head, I'd say uh, North Face is named into it. Um, we're, you know, working part of their original guidelines. Um, but yeah, in general, it's Aspen Speed Corporation. Um, for example, the, the leader of this, um, this is like a nice little case study, uh, came out and was like, I'd rather deal with um, you know, dictators and environmentalists and climate change as a host and da 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 da. And here's the guy who's running uh, the you know, head of this 
letter, uh, the sign-on letter, like, hey, we think that we should probably get there. Um, and he had very little help in Delbert, for sure. What do you think structurally needs to happen in those companies? Is it about not being able to take a risk or even like I look at the progression that the tech industry has been on um, for better or worse, but it took a while to bring policy people inside those companies. You know, you even look, um, yeah, like where I came from. So it's all engineers, all product people start with a couple marketers and you break some things and you have to hire policy people, right? right? Like you actually, you get forced into it and then you end up with a path to affect change in an interesting way. Um, I'm wondering if there's a model that the outdoor industry and the companies in it. Yeah. It's interesting. What, what needs to change to get people to, I, I think that with all this, these big companies, it's hard to, to move, um, which is understandable. I have to for that. Uh, and the reality is that we're on, I do believe we're on a 30-year trajectory uh, to you know, really overhaul our energy system. And these things we're fighting for right now in 30 years, I think we're going to feel pretty good about it. How much of a role do you think that the consumer can play in pushing these companies? Well, I think the consumer absolutely. Um, I think the consumer is playing a huge role. The reason why everyone um, is moving in this direction is like, you know, everyone's looking at that event as um, they have seen really consistent growth. social media like the action sports industry is interesting because you know you 
have a path to talk to a younger audience in a way that a lot of people don't. And, you know, they really look to you and kind of your peers as role models. What are the good parts of social media and where you've seen positive change and impact and voice? And what are the parts you're, you're worried about? Yeah, I mean, I, I can't... Right now, in, in our world, social media is really Speaking on Instagram, the benefits are the ease and barrier to entry to publish, to tell a story. Like, there is no barrier to entry. It's awesome. But anyone can get out there and publish a photo, tell a story, have a message there. That's a wonderful thing. And it's something we need to really. super quickly on that so so you as like you're still a pro snowboarder you're out every day you're running a business you've got protector winners you've got a family how do you you've got to post on social media right like even though it gives you a voice like it's another step in your day um how do you keep it all together and maybe what are you working on as a person maybe you don't keep it together (laughs) not but um yeah, I mean, I just, it's an important, um, you know, it, it does take time. Um, I try, I, I do, I mean, I've always had a camera in my pocket, you know, I love taking photos, I love telling stories. 
So I do like that side of things, but yes, the, the consistency of it can get old, and I guess the you know there's the really simple things I'll throw out there, and then the stuff that takes more thought. Throw a photo up there a couple times a week, and you don't even really need to write it. But you, we expect you to do that. Get over it if you want that hard. Um, and so for me, I guess I focus on publishing the stuff, and I don't, with that, I don't have a lot of time to like, check the feed. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it is part of the job, and it's something that's changed a lot, and the contracts now are just. No. Yeah. And you've had a long relationship with O'Neill and Cliff Bar, right? Last, um, last, just like quick on like resources that you kind of go to, or what are you things you've read that have meant a lot to you, or that you're reading? God, I, um, I mean, I definitely for me, I really am reading a lot on um, kind of uh, like this book. Stillness is the key. Yeah. Um, great book on just like working on yourself 
head on and again it goes into that side of things of just trying to evolve. Um, I would say, you know, obviously I've got my weather sets that I What's your go-to weather site? Um, or well, maybe you have, yeah, here, right. I really like. I have, um, for news, I've had to, like, really, you know, after 2016, it was just like, I really had to get away from clickbait stuff. Um, so it's more, for me, um, there's a kind of a news curator called Next Draft. Yeah. Uh, do you know that? Yeah. Yeah, I really, like, that's kind of where I get my news now. But then I do love um, just good literature. You know, give myself a break on things and just read um, just books and reading is that it's won a bunch of awards and it's uh, based around trees, but it's written in a really interesting way. What about listening to? Do you are you on the podcast? Do you, yeah. is that yeah? Yeah, so um, a mix of different things. I mean, I really love this Guild uh, podcast by Amy Westerfield, which is um, it really breaks down the birth of climate denial. It's investigative reporting on how we get to it. And that's been really helpful to understand the creation of these climate denialists. There's a reason why they're of a certain age group from certain regions, white males. Recently, I've been on which role, and I'm uh, digging out. I liked Tim Ferriss, but he um, broke my heart with the Charles Koch interview, and I can't I didn't even see. Um, I used to be all over Tim Ferriss. Um, Wait, what happened? Just quickly. The- he, um, he interviewed Charles Koch and just tiptoed. The Koch brothers have um, funded really did not push him on it and just a super soft interview and then it, it came at the heels of um, I started noticing like some of his guests would be like yeah I'm really concerned with climate change and they did this heartfelt thing and, and it seems to know that some of them like dig on that stuff and just pivot away and away and away and I'm like he is well, he just avoids climate change at all costs, and then brings on the biggest climate denier in the world. He's very well spoken. To his credit, he sounds like he's doing some great prison work and what have you. But there is no defense of his climate work that he has done, and, and um, you know, he's in many ways learning this match because of him. That's just crushing. What would you say to your, what would you say to your, eighteen-year-old self, <laughs> or to your kids? Either you've got your kids are in the mountains with you now, which I think is pretty awesome. Yeah. As a family, yeah, we just. It is amazing. No, we just got back from Austria. We just went to um, the Arlbergs and did 10 days 
with the kids and we got back and one thing I like really thought about pretty deeply was like two weeks after, like I've only spent probably two hours total with the kids and I had just spent every day, all day, like exploring a new place. Like you could not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, whether you like snow or all the yeah. outdoor stuff, I mean, it, I don't know, it could be as simple as sleeping in the backyard. Right, yes. Go outside. Yeah. As a family, it's just gold. It's hands down the best interactions I have with my kids. It doesn't need to be on a chairlift. But 18 year old self, I stay out of it. It all worked out. It did. Yeah. And to my kids, got it. And now, as a parent, I'm like, I don't know if I can. Yeah, awesome. Well, this was fun. Thanks for joining. Good to catch up. We'll see you in the mountains. That's right. All right, take care. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Common Threads. If you liked the show, please tell your friends and followers on social media and encourage them to tune in. You can also leave a rating or review to help new listeners discover the show on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you're listening on. Or send me feedback directly on Twitter at David underscore Swain. And then head over to join our new platform for athletes at theprokit.com.